take your Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk. If you've been here the past couple weeks, your Bible should kind of fall open there. And we're going to be there for a few more weeks, uh, Lord willing. Uh, let me, as we turn there to Habakkuk chapter 2, let me just, a uh, little housekeeping. Uh, sometimes you forget that, that maybe we've had turnover, maybe some people haven't been here long or not aware. But these benches up here, we use these as altars for places where people can pray. I want to make this abundantly clear. These are always open. Uh, there's not a time in this, in our church, where if this building is open and you're here, that you can't come up and pray. It doesn't have to be just during the music. It can be during the message. Don't ever let the fact that I'm about to preach run you off from the altar or keep you from coming to the altar. If you have business to do with the Lord, we encourage you to come and do it. Uh, I saw this morning that, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but it said, you'll get more out of the sermon if you pray for your pastor. And, and that just reminds me that the power is not in the preaching, the power is in the prayer. If I'm not prayed up, it doesn't matter how much I've studied up. If I'm not prayed up, it doesn't matter how much I've prepared to do what I'm doing right now. The power that comes from this moment, the power that comes in your life, the power that comes in our grow groups, all the power that we have is from the power of prayer. We're asking a holy God to do what only He can do through the power that only He has. It's nothing in ourselves. So just food for thought, asterisk, whatever you want to call it, the altars are always open here at Westmobile Baptist Church. So, today I want us to look at the three guarantees of Habakkuk, and they're all found in chapter 2, and we're going to look at all those today. Now, the last two weeks we've talked about the, the questions that Habakkuk had for God, how he went to God and said, I don't understand this, I don't like this, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. And it's just a good reminder for us that, that God is not so frail or fragile that He can't take us questioning Him. He can't take us going to Him and going, what's up? I, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on or why it's going on. How can you get glory from this? How can this be for, for my good? I know your word says you're working everything for my good, but I don't like the working right now. So we can always go to God and ask questions. Now we go from those two questions that he asked and the two answers that God gave and now we get an opportunity to look at three things that God guarantees to Habakkuk. And when he guarantees it to Habakkuk, we are guaranteed those same things. We, we have these guarantees in our own lives. Now, I, will, I hesitate to say this because I feel like if I say this, nobody will be here next week. But I'm going to trust you to do the right thing. So we're going to look at five, uh, three guarantees this week. And then next week, we're going to look at five woes. So, and, I, and I say that not to try to scare you from being here next week. Y'all know I'm a rain cloud, so it's just like the mobile weather. It's been sunny for a few weeks. Wait for the, it's coming. The rain's coming. But I want you to think about the fact that God gives us these three guarantees, and I hope that you'll be encouraged by these things this morning. But then in the same chapter, in the same context of where he gives us these guarantees, he also gives five woes. In other words, five things that you don't want to be a part of but they're there. And so think about that as we go through these three guarantees, just in your mind, be thinking about the grace of God that is shown to us in these guarantees because there also is the wrath of God that we'll talk about next week in those five woes. So there's three assurances that he gives in the second chapter of Habakkuk, and these are assurances that we can rely on today. Again, even if we have questions, God has guarantees. For we have doubts, God has guarantees. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us today through your word? Would you do that which only you can do? 
God, your word is reminded of C.S. Lewis. Your word is aligned. It doesn't need us to defend it. It needs us to open the cage. So God, help me to open the cage this morning. And then you speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Three guarantees in the book of Habakkuk. The first one is in the early part of the book, or the chapter here in chapter 2. Uh, remember, he's told him, uh, Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand my post until I get an answer. And then God says, write this answer down. Verse 3 says it's not for the appointed time, but it testifies about the end. And then look at verse 4. He's talking about the Babylonians here, but he says, look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. Pause. Now, he's talking about the Babylonians. To me, that could be talking about a whole lot of politicians I've known, a whole lot of unscrupulous businessmen that I've known. Sadly, a whole lot of people in churches that I have known. Sometimes, if we're not careful, that could be us. If we allow our ego to be inflated, we might find ourselves without integrity. But here's where I want us to focus on this first guarantee. The first guarantee is God's grace. He says this, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Some translations just say the righteous will live by faith. So where do you get grace from that? Hold up. I'm glad you asked. Stay with me. So, so this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Now, regardless of how many sermons I'm going to preach out of Habakkuk, it's not a long book. It's three chapters. It, it, by the way, minor prophets are not minor. I want to remind you this. Not minor because of their message. They're minor because of the, the scope or the time period of their message. So this is a very small, scrunched up window of time where Habakkuk shares three short chapters of God's prophecy to him. He talks about all the things that are going on and the questions and then the promises, the guarantees, the woes. And then in chapter 3, he sings a song. It's really a beautiful thing. I can't wait to get there to talk about the hymn of Habakkuk and what he does, uh, how he speaks to God and about God after, after all that has transpired in the first two chapters. But here, here, this little tiny snippet from verse 4, we find it three different places in the New Testament. Now, I want you to go ahead and turn to Romans 1, and I want you to try to go ahead and get your finger in Galatians 3. So we're going to get there. I want you to read along with me. Um, if, if you have a scripture, if you have a Bible, if you have one on your phone, get it ready. So Romans 1.17, he quotes it. And in Romans 1.17, he's emphasizing the just, the righteous. And then in Galatians 3.11, he emphasizes how they should live. And then in Hebrews 10, that'll be the last one we look at, he emphasizes their faith. So, so look at this. Just a short little snippet out of one verse out of this small minor prophet is used three times for three different focuses in the New Testament. If you look at this, this uh, sentence in Habakkuk, in the Hebrew, you have three words that we're going to talk about. And again, that's the three words that are emphasized in the New Testament uh, uses of this verse. The first, ver the first word is righteous, and that word in the Hebrew is sadiq. And it means a just or lawful person. It is talking about those who live uh, according to God's rules and according to God's standards. The second word is the word live, and that in the Hebrew is kayal. And it means to live prosperous, uh, prosperously. Sorry, and this is not prosperity gospel living. This is not name it and claim it living. This is how we are called to live. If we live by faith, if we are the righteous and we do live by our faith, we will live prosperously. You know why? Because prosperous does not mean wealthy. In this context, prosperous does not mean I've got a, a lake house and a beach house and a, a, you know, a work car and a, and a fun car and a boat and a yacht. It just means that we are living in the joy of the Lord. We are living because we know that, that whatever we have here and whatever we have to go through here, we have treasures laid up. We are laying up treasures in heaven. We have a mansion 
that has been built for us, that, that Jesus has, has orchestrated and designed and constructed us a mansion where we live forever and we'll have no more pain or death. We, we can live prosperously here because we are focused on where we're going to live then. Then the last word is faith. And that word in the Hebrew is imunah. And, and I want you to get this. This is a little protracted, so stay with me. There's a literal, figurative, and moral meaning here, okay? For this word faith, imunah, in the Hebrew, it means literally firmness, figuratively security, and morally fidelity. So listen to that. Firmness, security, and fidelity. In other words, faithfulness to obligations, duties, or observances. That's what our faith looks like. This sounds like a commercial. It's not. I'm just telling you what the text says. Faith is show up to church. You have made an obligation by putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. You are saying not only that, that you trust Him to save you, that you trust Him to secure your eternity in heaven and, and save you from hell, but you are also making an, a, a commitment to Him that by faith you are going to serve Him. <clears throat> One of the main problems with the word Christian and how it's been hijacked is that we have allowed it to, to, to be labeled on people who don't really live it. Well, yeah, they're a Christian. No, they go to church twice a year. That doesn't make you a Christian. I love the old saying that coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sleeping in the garage makes you a Cadillac. We've labeled people as Christian when they rarely ever come to church. You, you want to you be a Christian? Serve Jesus. You know how to serve Jesus? Go to church. Being a Christian is more than coming to church, but it's never less. It's never less. We are a family of faith and we are to gather and edify and encourage and fellowship and grow and worship together. Listen, you're going to be a terrible, uh, when you're in heaven one day, you're going to be terrible in, the, in, the, in the, the heavenly choir when you ain't been to church practicing singing. I got emotional over there this morning. I, 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 just be honest with you, I get it a lot, but this morning it just hit me. We were singing the great I am. And that song fires me up. And I, I, got, I, I try not to sing it. Y'all know I've said this. It's, it's hard to preach. <clears throat> it's, it's hard on the vocal cords and all that. So I try not to sing. And I'm terrible at that. I, I just stand over there every Sunday. Right, I'm just going to kind of stand here. I'm going to maybe mouth the words. And I'll just I'll hum a little bit. Or I'll just kind of softly. And next thing, Great I'm just top of my lungs. But I got, to a, got a little choked up. Got a little, you know, a little throat thing going on. So I stopped. And I hear this beautiful sound coming, not just from the stage. Our worship team is amazing. But I could hear y'all. And for just a minute, I thought, man, heaven is going to be off the chain. Because <laughs> this, like, what we're doing in here is like a penny compared to a billion, trillion, gazillion dollars compared to what heaven's going to be like when we worship there. But come and practice. Come and be encouraged. That's part of what faith means, is that you are faithful to your obligations, your duties, your observances. Now, Let's look at Romans 1. I love Romans 1, 16. I would encourage you to memorize it. For I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. That is what the gospel is. It is given to the Jews first. Remember, born, Jesus was born. He was a Jewish man. He came from the Jewish lineage all the way back to Adam. And he was the Messiah of the Jewish people. But even all the way back in the Old Testament, it talks about for all nations. You go back to Genesis 12. He tells Abraham that you will be a blessing to all nations. Why? Because he knows the Messiah is going to come from him. And the Messiah is for every man, woman, boy, and girl, Jew or Gentile, that, that calls upon the name of the Lord. But then look at verse 17. For, the, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There's that, there's that verse. And what is the focus? The focus there is looking at the just person, how, how the just person will live. The just person, the righteous person, will not be ashamed of the gospel. You know what that means? That means you've got to wear your, your faith on your sleeve. You ought to wear it on your chest. You ought to wear it on your forehead. It ought to be something that just defines who you are. If you're defined by what football team you root for, you have put your trust in a terrible God. Football, great sport, lousy God. Baseball, I love the Braves, but the Braves ain't getting me to heaven. Baseball, awesome sport, terrible God. And anything else that you can find to focus in on this world, if you put your trust there, you're going to be disappointed one day. But if you put your trust in God, I'm unashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to live it out. If it costs me my life, if it costs me popularity, if it costs me friends, fine, good, because I'm unashamed. I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to walk in the, the truth of the gospel. I'm going to make it known. The righteous will live by faith. Look at Galatians 3. Really, it's 10 and 11, but you can read all the way to 14. But for our purposes today, look at 10 and 11. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, pause. Why is that? Or what is that? What is that telling us? That is telling us that you cannot live good enough to go to heaven. Now, some of y'all are disappointed in that. You thought, I'm a good person and all good people go to heaven. No. Again, you have a faulty premise, my friend. You, you think there are good people. There are no good people. Jesus says there's none righteous. There's none righteous. There are no, nobody is righteous. Nobody can live perfectly by the law. The law is not salvific. The law is like a Q-beam that shows us our need for a Savior. So, so we cannot live according to the law and get to heaven. Verse 11, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. Again, we cannot be justified. We cannot be made right. We cannot be made a new creation, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, by the law. The law just says you're messed up. You are jacked up. You're messed up as a soup sandwich. You're as messed up as a football bat. You are a hot, steaming mess. And without Christ, you're going to go to hell. That's what the law tells us. But then we have good news here. You cannot be justified by, God, by the law before God. Why? The last part of verse 11, because the righteous will live by faith. The righteous won't live by the law. The righteous won't live by the rules. The righteous won't live hoping that they can be good enough or they can come to church enough or because, so they can show God their, their baptismal certificate. They live by faith. So it emphasizes in Galatians 3 how we should live. And then in Hebrews 10, it emphasizes their faith. That's what the whole book of Hebrews does. Listen to Hebrews 10. Uh, we'll, let's go back to 32 and we'll just kind of get a running start to 38. Hebrews 10, 32, Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. Remember now, Hebrews is written primarily to Hebrews. <laughs> That's why they named it that. It's not because the man makes the coffee at the house. It's, it's written for the Hebrew nation. It's written for Jewish believers. Go to 35. He says, Don't throw away your confidence, which has, which has great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, and don't miss that either, it's in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. Here it is, verse 38. But the righteous will live by faith. But then there's an addendum here. The righteous one will live by faith, 
And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. What that means is, if you give up on your faith, you didn't have faith. If you give up on your faith, you didn't have faith. And he's got, he's, if you draw back, if you were unashamed of the gospel and now you are ashamed of the gospel, you didn't have faith. You had a, an emotional situation. You had a, a warm, fuzzy feeling for a while. Maybe you bumped your head. I don't know. But you did not have true faith. Look at verse 39. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed because, I'm sorry, but those who have faith are saved. Not who do good works, not who follow the law, not who come to church every Sunday and put on a facade, those who have faith. Faith is real, tangible relationship with Christ. So how do we get from faith to God's grace? That was the point, right? I, I, I made a point of God's grace is the first guarantee, and now I've been talking about faith for 30 minutes. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you are saved. Oh, I love this. How are you saved? By grace. You see, the guarantee is God's grace. So you are saved by grace. Again, not by works. Verse 9 will tell us that. Not, not because you're a white American or not because you're you know, a Republican and not because you're a Baptist. You are saved by grace. But look at the mechanism. Through faith. You are saved by God's grace, but it is through your faith in Jesus that that grace is, is, is transposed into you. You are saved by grace through faith not of yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so nobody can boast. Listen, again, if we are allowed to boast, we'll be just like this. His ego is inflated, he is without integrity. If we could boast, if we could get to heaven on our own works, we would brag about it so much that people would hate your guts. Yeah, I'm going to heaven because I'm such a good person. God said, I don't, want, I don't like that, I'm not going to have that. We're just going to go by grace through faith. Not of works so nobody can boast. And then Hebrews 11, we've, we've gone over this several weeks in a row now. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For, this, for by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. This phrase, by faith, is found over 20 times in the book of Hebrews. Warren Wiersbe said, It has well been said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, it is obeying in spite of consequence. Resting on God, God's faithfulness. He has given us His grace. We must rest in His faithfulness. We must trust in His faithfulness. God can do anything, but He can't do one thing. He cannot go against His nature. He cannot go against Himself. That's why Paul would write uh, that, that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Because He can't go against His own nature. I can be unfaithful. My flesh, by the way, is always unfaithful. If I listen to my flesh, it's going to tell me the wrong thing to do, Gino, 10 out of 10 times. My faith is a liar. My fa uh, sorry, my flesh is a liar. My, fa my flesh is sneaky. My flesh is conniving. My flesh has its own agenda. But I have to reject my flesh, and I have to listen to my spirit. I have to let the Holy Spirit, who has taken up residence in me because I have put my faith and trust in Christ, I have to let that spirit call the shots. That spirit only calls the shots when I submit by faith. If you are an atheist, you must believe something that contradicts one of the laws of the very thing that you say you believe. If you deny the supernatural, if you deny that we have a creator God, then what you say is, 
that all of this stuff was in this infinitesimal speck and the, the super gravity was on it. It was spinning around. Then it exploded in the Big Bang and everything came from that. Now what, what that does is that contradicts one of the laws of nature that says matter is neither created nor destroyed. If matter is neither created nor destroyed, then where did the matter come from that we started from? There has to be something supernatural to tie the two ends of this discussion together. We cannot get here by happenstance. We cannot get here by coincidence. We are created by a God who loves us, and because He created us and because He loves us, He made a way for us to get back to Him. Again, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It is obeying in spite of consequence. Now, I have two statements on this, and we're going to move to the second one. A Christian should never mistake a surface-level optimism for the peace that passes understanding, which only God can provide. We have several people in our church family that are going through terrible things. Emotional things, uh, illness, uh, illness of family members, brokenness. I can tell you from experience that surface-level optimism does like surface-level water. It evaporates. It just, it just does. You can be rocking right along, singing your songs and just happy as a clam, and if it's only surface-level optimism that's keeping you that way, have a sick kid. Have a financial problem. Have other brokenness that happens. Have a death in the family, and watch how quickly it goes away. Here's the second statement. Instead of that surface-level optimism, every Christian should hold to and draw joy from their faith in spite of the disappointments, disillusionments, and death that this world holds. We have been promised God's grace. We need to find our joy in God's grace. We need to find our peace in God's grace. We need to find our comfort in God's grace. Number two, not only does he guarantee his grace, he also guarantees God's glory. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk. Here's one of the woes. He says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Uh, it's, is it not from the Lord of armies that people's labor? And then he says this, verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. That word glory in the Hebrew is kavod. And it means properly weight. Splendor, righteousness. I love this word, copiousness. That's a good, that's a good 50 cent word there, but just the copiousness of God. In other words, the extravagance of God. The, the figurative proper meaning of the word kavod in Hebrew means weight. Now, by the way, that's not weight, weight, like we have weight. If you, by the way, if you're too thin, I have some weight I will give you. So if there's any way I can just transfer weight to you, I'd be happy to get rid of some. You ain't got to bring it back. I, I think I'll make some more. But that's not, that's not literally what we're doing here. We're talking about this word kavod as the weight of God. But his weight is not in weight. Remember the, in John 4, Jesus said God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God's weight is in his glory. It's in his copiousness. The word in, he, in uh, Greek is doxa. It is the glory of God. The radiance, the copiousness, the, the righteousness, the splendor 
of God. And I think for us to best understand this promise, this guarantee of God's glory, is to go back and look at the tabernacle and the temple. So go back with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Uh, and and I, if you want to know all about the Exodus, if you want to know all about the tent of meeting and the tabernacle and how that stuff was laid out, come talk to April. She teaches it better than I do. She knows, she knows it backwards and forwards. But, but, but if you look at how it was laid out, there was a certain structure and you had to enter in. Uh, by the way, I could also talk to you about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And that was him telling he was the entry, the entry, and the entry, by the way, of, of the, the old tabernacle set up. Different day. All right, Exodus 40. Listen to what he says. He says, the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it went into the, the, the primary area. Moses... By the way, Moses, who spoke to God as a friend, Moses, who had talked to God on the mountain and came down and glowed so badly from, from being near God and seeing where God had been, they had to cover him with a sheet. They had to put a veil over him because they couldn't stand it. That's Moses. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The, the, the copiousness of the Lord, the weight of God filled the tabernacle to the point that the man closest to God at this point in time could not go in. That's weighty. That's powerful. That is the presence of Almighty God. Then go to the temple. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Beginning of verse 1, he says, When Solomon finished praying... Fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is after they had built the temple for him. The priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because of the glory of the Lord that filled the temple of the Lord. All the Israelites were watching when the fire descended, and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. They bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and praised the Lord, for he is good, for he is faithful. His faithful love endures forever. This is the glory of the Lord. When the glory of the Lord shows up, you wind up on the floor. You wind up uh, prostrate where you are praying and worshiping the Lord. Uh, I always, me and April were talking about this the other day. I used to always say by earlier in my faith, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to ask Jonah what kind of fish that was. Uh, I, I'm going to ask Moses, hey, when you're walking across the Red Sea, did you like glance over and see a bass? What's the biggest fish? I'm Again, I'm a fisherman. I love to fish. Moses, when you walked across the Red Sea on dry ground, did you just look over and say, like, shark, barracuda, grouper? Like, I would always think about these questions I wanted to ask people. The longer I walk with Jesus, the longer I follow Christ, the longer, the longer I study this beautiful word of his, these, these ancient texts that are so current and relevant, the more I know about him, the less questions I have. I just want to listen. I just want to get to heaven and I want to lay on my face before a holy God. I want to lay on my face before the one who went to the cross for me, the one who took my punishment and paid my debt. I just want to worship. I want to, I want to feel the weight of his glory. I want to feel the weight of His copiousness, His righteousness, His presence. I want to feel that. You see, the height of God's righteousness is why the depth of man's depravity must be dealt with so severely. In Genesis 6, when God was about to flood the earth, He says in verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. 
He said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. We don't deserve the guarantee of God's grace. We don't deserve the guarantee of God's glory. Number three, but then he also promises, he guarantees God's governance. Look at verse 20. The last verse of chapter 2 the last verse of guarantee, the last verse through the woes, before he sings his song, says his prayer through song to the Lord. He says this in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. God's governance. See, this, this verse, verse 20, is in direct contrast to the idols that he speaks about in 18 and 19. He says in verses 18 and 19, these idols are, are lifeless. They're worthless. Again, whatever it is that you worship here, whatever it is that you put your time and money and energy into here that's not being focused on worshiping the Lord, that's your God. You are, you are making idols. You make idols out of football teams. You make idols out of money. You make idols out of popularity, out of fame. Again, if you climb to the top of every idol that you build in your life, you're going to find a mirror because really all of that stuff is worshiping you. We, we are worshipers. That's what we were designed to do. We were in our DNA. We were programmed from birth to be worshipers. If we don't direct our worship properly to, to God, we will direct it improperly to something. I'm convinced that if you parachute into the most remote jungle in the world, you will find people worshiping something. A rock, a river, the sun, uh, some kind of carved image. That's what we do. All of these idols have no breath in them. That's what he says. He says it in these two verses. There's no breath in them at all. And then he pivots, but the Lord. But the Lord. While idols made by human hands are lifeless, the Lord is alive and well and seated on his throne. I want you to look at me. If you're going through tough times today, I give you great hope in these words. The Lord is on his throne. It doesn't matter who's in the White House when the Lord's on His throne. It doesn't matter who's in the governor's mansion when the Lord is on His throne. It doesn't matter who's in the mayor's office when the Lord is on His throne because He's going to take care of His people. It may not always feel good, but listen to me, church, it's going to be good. He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I have great faith in that verse. I have great trust in that verse. And therefore, I have great hope in that verse. I don't care what you do to me down here. This ain't my home. I don't care what tomorrow brings because I know who holds tomorrow. I don't need to worry about what's going to happen or what's going what's to transpire because my faith and my trust and my hope is in the Lord God alone and He is sitting on His throne. And He is still able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. Even if we can't perceive it, even if we can't understand it, that does not limit His ability. And it does not limit or stop His availability. Psalm 11:4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord, His throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. In Psalm 103:19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules Overall. Brother Kevin, you don't understand, man. Them Democrats don't get me. 
The Lord established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Oh, Brother Kevin, you don't understand. Them Republicans are going to take our money. They're going to put old people out in the street and not going to fund our veterans. Hold up. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. I don't, I don't put my trust in Democrats or Republicans. I don't put my trust in, in, in money and status and fame. I put my trust in the one who is before all and through all and in the end all, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is sitting on His throne. It's going to be okay. This is going to seem like I'm chasing a rabbit. Y'all bear with me. Give me a little grace here, okay? Have, have you, how many of y'all have heard the phrase, getting on the soapbox? All right? Pretty good enough. Now, again, put your hands down. Now, how many of you know where that came from? You know the origin of, of that phrase, getting on my soapbox? Okay, good. I get to teach y'all something. <laughs> this is interesting to me. It started in the earliest 20th century America. What they would do is, whenever somebody wanted to talk about something in public, they would get these, they had these boxes, like these crates. They were literally soap boxes. And they would flip them over, and then they would stand up on them in public, on the sidewalk. So they'd flip the thing over, they'd stand on it, and that would give them a little bit, you know, maybe 18 inches above everybody, and then they would talk about what they wanted to talk about. I wonder, Jacob, if they held their food up when they would get on their... Because this, this, was, this was the early 20th century version of social media. You know, rather than getting on Instasham or, or whatever Elon's calling his thing now, or, or Facebag, they would, they would hold their food up and say, look, this is what I'm about to eat. They'd hold up a sandwich. Actually, I don't think they did. I think they were more concerned about getting something to eat back then than showing a picture of their, what they're going Anyway, this was basically social media of its day where you would get a soapbox and you would stand up on it and you would maybe talk about a political issue. Maybe you'd address the government. Maybe you would you know, talk about a candidate or, a, or a, a situation that you knew of. But that's where it came from. Now, modern day, social media began in 1996, which is terrifying to me, by the way. Social media is less than 30 years old. But listen to this. According to one online research firm, out of the 8 billion people on the earth right now, about 5 billion of them are on social media. That's over half. Out of 8 billion people, over half of them are on social media. And the average number of social media platforms used by those 5 billion people, 6.6. .6. Nearly seven social media platforms per five billion people on social media. Can I just tell y'all something? There ain't no way that five billion people on this planet have that much to say. I'm just telling you. That's the problem with a lot of this stuff. We got these guys got their own YouTube channel. They got seven. Listen, you walk down the street and ask everybody that you pass, do you have a podcast? And I bet you 70% of them have a podcast. Like, there's probably homeless people down there sleeping under the interstate that's got a podcast. There's all kind of craziness out there on, on the Internet. But, but listen to this. In 2010, only about 1 billion people had social media. 13 years ago, only about 1 billion. Today, 5 billion. Almost 61% of the 8 billion people in the world use social media. Of the eligible audiences, which would be 13 plus, by the way, some of y'all started when you were 10, you lied about your age, y'all go fix your Facebook. Y'all are confusing everybody. I, you ain't 57, you faked your age and now go fix it. 
Listen, out of, this, out of, out of that number, 63% of that eligible audience of 13 and older, 63% are active users, 72% of the total U.S. population. That's about 240 million out of the 330 million on this in, in the United States. That's a lot of soapboxes. Now, here's my point. In a loud society that seems to be obsessed with being heard, seen, or recognized, here is a good reminder that when we are in the presence of the Lord, silence will be our immediate response. Again, Habakkuk 2.20, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in His presence. Zephaniah, who I'm working on getting those messages together now, Zephaniah 1.7, he talks a lot about the great day of the Lord. He says this, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. Spoiler alert, that verse don't say what you think it says. We're talking about consecrating His guests. It's going to be good. Zechariah, the other minor prophet with a Z, 2.13, Let all humanity be silent before the Lord, for from His holy dwelling He has roused Himself. In other words, He has come out of His holy dwelling to take care of what needs to be taken care of. You better hush. How many of you have ever, uh, I hate to ask it, I'm not going to ask this question, don't answer. But just, just answer it to yourself. How many of y'all have ever had a whipping? Don't raise your hand, because I'm, I'm scared to know them numbers. <laughs> I, I could probably guess and probably get me, I probably had to get my resume tuned up. How many of you have ever, ever had a whipping? Now, if, and I, I, would, I would presume that you're much like me, if I was about to get a whipping, I better hush. I see some of y'all laughing and nodding. If I'm about to get a whipping and I'm still running my yap, there were times when I just keep getting whipped until I quit talking. We are guaranteed God's governance. Listen to me. So that means when punishment comes, you better hush. That's not the time for you to try to debate God about what you did or didn't do or what He should or shouldn't do in response. You need, to, you need to understand that, that He is going to govern. Actually, He is governing now. He is governing us now. And He will govern us for eternity. When He comes, when He shows up, silence. Silence is the desired response. It's, it's the necessary response. When God speaks, all of creation listens. Scripture says that one day every knee will bow. It doesn't say every saved person's knee will bow. It doesn't say every Baptist person's knee will bow. It doesn't say every church person. It says every knee will bow. Those on heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the atheist, the agnostic, everybody, when he shows up, they're going to bow. They're going to be silent. And then they're going to confess that Christ is Lord. Why? Because of the guarantee of God's governance. Let me give you two thoughts and then we're done. Number one, because of God's grace, we will be able to see God's glory. And regardless of what trials we face on this earth, we are living under God's governance and we will for eternity. Because of God's grace, those of us who have confessed Christ, again, not those of us who have some, yeah, I shook a preacher's hand one time, or I, I got baptized one time. 
I go to church a lot. Yeah, I'm a member. Hey, hey, listen, that's a pet peeve. When I say, hey, man, if you were to die today, tell me where you would go. Oh, I'd go to heaven. Why? Well, because I'm a member of so-and-so church. Or my granddaddy was a pastor. Or I got baptized one time when I was five. None of those are reasons you're going to heaven. Where are you going to go if you were to die today? I'd go to heaven. How do you know that? Because I have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus. Because I've confessed Christ and, and He is my King and I serve Him. Because of God's grace, we'll be able to see God's glory and regardless of what trials we face on this earth, we are living under God's governance. Number two, again, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, our job as products of His grace and partakers in His glory and subjects of His governance is to live in a way that points others to Christ. You want to know if you're saved? How you living? I have people all the time. Happen a lot more as a youth pastor. I have people all the time. But Kevin, I don't understand. How do I know that I'm saved? I said a prayer. I walked an aisle. I, I went through these motions. I became a member. I got baptized. How do I know that I'm saved? Fruit of the Spirit. No root, no fruit. And no fruit, no root. You want to know you're saved? Serve the Lord. Don't, don't try to take advantage of, of God's grace. Don't think that you're going to come in and kind of bogart God's glory. And do not ever, whatever you do, do not think that you can get out from under God's governance. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible then you have demonic faith. James says the demons believe and tremble. There is nobody in this room that believes in Jesus any more than the demons. They believe in Him. And they tremble because they know that they have a, a future that awaits them. Mere belief is not going to get you there. It's faith. It's faith by grace, through faith, in Christ. Would you stand with me? here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't understand these three guarantees. You don't, you don't get those guarantees. Those guarantees are for those of us who have committed our lives to Christ, become children of the Most High God. But today, you can confess your sins, you can give your life to Christ, you can serve Him from here on out, and you can get these three guarantees today. Our invitation time always is for somebody to confess Christ, to rededicate their life, to join our church. All of those things are always on the table. Today, it's really simple. There's two things that I'm asking you to do during this time of invitation. Number one, if you are a child of the King, if you are a, a child of the Most High God because you have surrendered your life to Christ, then I want you to just thank Him. Thank Him for the guarantee of His grace, His glory, and His governance. And if you're here without Christ, I want you to God, would you show yourself, would you, would you show yourself to me so that I can give my life to Christ? I'm going to say a quick prayer. When I say amen, you move. Don't wait. Don't look around. If you haven't been here before, this isn't one of those churches where we sing 20 stanzas. If you know, if you know that you need to be saved, you need to run up here. I'm not begging you. Listen, Jesus doesn't need a PR guy. You know you're convicted of your sin. You know you need Christ. When I say amen, you better get up here. We're not waiting. Today's the day of salvation. 
He's calling you today. You've got to respond. Let me pray. When I finish praying, you do what God is leading you to do. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for the power of it. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't cast any shadows. I pray, God, that I would just help highlight it, that I would just reveal what your word says. God, you are the, the creator, the sustainer, the giver of your grace, your glory, and your governance. And I pray, God, that today you would save anyone here that does not know Christ. Move in this place and we give you glory for it in Christ's name.